Good morning. morning. Wake up, people. Come on. Um, So, I got to tell you how my my week went this week. You guys okay with me doing that a little bit? Is that all right? Okay, so so on a normal week, um, when I am going to teach up here, uh, maybe a surprise to you, but um, on Tuesday morning is like my kind of like prep time uh, for Sunday morning. Um, at least half of it. So I'll spend about maybe three or four hours on Tuesday morning just looking over stuff, reading passages, and reading commentaries, um, big, thick, boring books. And then um, I'll take all that stuff, I'll type a bunch of stuff out, just ideas, brainstorm. And then on Thursday morning, I will um, take Thursday morning about four to five hours on Thursday morning and just hammer it all out. And so most weeks where we're teaching in here, I'm Maybe like eight to ten hours of prep goes into like what we're talking about on Sunday morning. Uh, so what was supposed to happen today is um, Mrs. Ron Slavin was supposed to speak to you today. And uh, so she, the way I approached my week was totally different. I just was like, hey, I don't have to preach on Sunday. I'm, I can do everything else I was going to do. Um, I can do all the other stuff and kind of make up for some lost time there. So um, then Wednesday night, I get this text message. And, uh, and she says, Ms. Ronslaven says, um, I've come down with the flu, and uh, I really can't prepare or teach on Sunday. And uh, so suddenly, right before equip groups, I'm like, whoa, okay, uh, i got to kind of reconfigure my Thursday then. So, um, so Thursday, I just try to hammer it out. And, um, and the, the fortunate thing is, um, today's passage is probably the hardest passage in the whole book of First Peter. So um, there's also that, and, uh, and also the most controversial um, passage in the whole book of First Peter. So um, I have decided today, because of some of that, to really mix in a lot of discussion, because I want you guys to wrestle with the text in the same way that I wrestled with the text this week. I want you guys to feel my pain, you know, um, of, of wrestling with this text today. So um, before we get into the text, though... Um, I'm just going to ask you a question and for you to discuss this first question at your tables. And here is the scenario. So you have a friend who's not a Christian, and one of their biggest issues with Christianity is the Bible itself. They claim the Bible is outdated because it commands wives to submit to their husbands. Bombshell. How would you handle a conversation about that with them? All right? Go ahead and discuss that for a few moments at your tables. All right, I know I'll interrupt some of you guys, but that's okay. It's always hard to gauge, like, where the tables are at. I try to look around and see, like, if you're still discussing. And some are, like, intense. Like, you're just, like, getting after it. Other ones are, like, on your phone, just kind of looking at stuff. And you're not looking up verses. You're looking up other stuff. I don't know what it is. Um, But uh, so did you guys get it figured out? Did you figure it out? You didn't figure it out. Who figured it out? Raise your hand. All right, all right, like three of you. All right, cool. Um, so, um, so we're going to dive into this text uh, this morning. I want to give you a couple of other preview things here, and and listen, we're going to talk about um, men's role and women's role um, as Peter talks about it in this book. But um, the picture we're going to paint for you this morning, most of you have never seen this. Most of us have never seen this. 
play out. Um, I didn't see it play out in my own family growing up. Uh, my parents to this day have just kind of a bitter, cold marriage. That's just how it is. Been that way for years. And, uh, and they could make use of a lot of counseling. They've never gone to counseling. Not once. And, uh, and yet, most of you here, I would contend, have probably never seen what we're going to talk about this morning truly played out in a marriage relationship in your own families or even probably extended family. Because it's rare. It is so rare to see um, what we're going to discuss actually play out in a biblical way. So um, remember, we talked about in the first few weeks of the book that Peter's talking to us about how great this salvation is, um, how great the gospel is, how great this salvation is. And then we, the theme of this book is strangers and aliens. So we've talked about how um, everything he talks about in this book if you truly live it out, you're going to be seen as weird. You're going to be seen as stranger and alien to the culture that we live in. You're going to seem strange and alien even to the Christian subculture. As I've said, what we're talking about today, I've not seen fully lived out in my own families. I struggle to live it out myself. So what uh, Peter's getting at um, everything that, that he talks about in this book is going to look strange to the world around us, um, including in the church. So we're going to read, um, I debated how to do this, but we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. And the first six verses is all to the women. Now guys, that does not mean... Um, you should get cocky here and be like, he gave them like six verses and the guy's got like two. So that means like, you know, you can't use that logic. It might just be that God's being simple-minded for the young men. I don't know. Um, maybe you get two verses. That's all you can handle. I don't know. But um, there's two ways to slice this thing, okay? Uh, but we're going to look at verses uh, one to six. And I was going to go through it like verse by verse, but I thought, let's just peel that band-aid right off and just rip it off, okay? And we're gonna, just going to go after it and read all six verses. Um, I even thought about, do uh, you guys know those little um, like 4th of July poppers that you throw on the ground and they like make a little popping sound? Um, anyone have those with them on them right, right now by chance? No. You know, you pyromaniacs? Okay. Um, I was going to get some of those, and like every time, to give like the dramatic effect of this passage, every time I get to like a controversial word or phrase, just like throw one on the ground. So you kind of get the visual of like, these are like bombs going off every time you hear certain words and phrases in this text. So look with me at verses uh, 1 to 6. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word... They may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children. 
if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. All right, so as I just read that, like there are people in this room that like you felt the hair on the back of your neck stand up. You kind of went like, like why did he say it like that, right? And we all feel it. I think even the guys here are kind of like, ah, I'm not sure if I would have said it just like that. So we're going to dive into this text. So here's all, first of all, what's the context? The context of this text, this passage, is um, a woman whose husband may not be a Christian. Now, that's not all he's talking about. This also would apply to um, where there is a, a husband who's a Christian, but he's also referring to a woman whose husband may not be a Christian. And this does not mean, ladies, so if you're looking at this text and you're going, oh, so there's a woman who's a Christian and a man who's not a Christian, therefore it's okay for me to date a non-Christian. Like, that's not what that's addressing. If you're currently in a relationship with someone, if you call yourself a Christian and you're with someone who would not claim to be a Christian or even really care that much about um, uh, the things of Christ, then the Bible talks about that's called being unequally yoked, and you should not be unequally yoked with someone who's not a believer. You don't um, missionary, mission date, okay? Um, You can't save him. Jesus can, but you cannot. So we don't encourage. It's actually unbiblical. It would be sinful for us to enter into a romantic relationship with someone who's not a believer. This is referring to someone who maybe she became a Christian after they were married, or maybe she sinfully married a a non-Christian, and now she's married to him, and, sh- and it would be also bi- unbiblical for her to divorce a non-Christian man once she has married him. Okay? So there's several scenarios that could be in play here. But what Peter is saying is he's saying wives be subject. So what does that mean exactly? You know, Paul uses the word submit. If you look at Ephesians, he uses the word submit. And we know this idea is highly controversial. Whenever I do a wedding ceremony, in fact, Emily is here. I think that's the last wedding I did was Emily's wedding right here. And, uh, and I actually use this word, and I, I talk about this concept of like submit, and as I get to that part of the, the wedding ceremony, I literally get nervous because I don't know who my audience is. It could be anybody out there. And I expect, I, I kind of like that I'm hiding behind the bride and groom in that moment. I'm like, they're going to catch all the tomatoes, you know, if they start throwing stuff at me. But I get nervous because this concept, when you just say that word, it just has a, a ring to it that we just, we just buck up against it and we hate the sound of it. So it's, it's hugely controversial. And here's why it's controversial. It's controversial because men have abused the concept. It's true. We have abused the concept of what it means. And so it, we just we want to buck up against it. This does not mean that one gender is superior and one is inferior. It does not mean this. It does not mean that a woman obeys a man like a child. That's not what this means. In fact, if I were to use a definition, I would use this one on what submission means. It means to... Defer ultimate leadership to the husband for the health and harmonious working of the marriage relationship. If you look at anything in the world, 
there is submission of some kind involved. Like, I have to submit to Jesus, first of all. I have to submit to the elders of this church. Their authority is over my life. Um, I have to submit in lots of, I have to submit to the law of our land. I have to submit to lots of things. And so do many of you. And so this is, this is God's way. So we talk about the word submission. There's another side of the coin, and it's leadership for the man. Another word that we don't really understand fully. We're going to unpack what that means in this talk as well. But it's not just submit. It also means that something's been placed on the man, this leadership role. And if you look at anything in our world, our culture, there needs to be someone who's accountable, someone who's responsible. And this is how I would talk about leadership in that context. So when we use the word leadership, many of us have the wrong idea what that even means. And so it skews our what we think of submission, what that looks like and what that means. And when I think about most men and how I feel even myself about leadership, most of us guys, when we truly realize what God is placing on our shoulders, we want to run. It's true. When most young men realize what God's placed on them, most men want to run and hide. Now, there are the exceptions who are like, you know, yeah, give me leadership. I will dominate. I will, I will enforce myself upon everyone. There are people, these dominating personalities who just love like those kinds of roles, and they, they, they don't fulfill them in a godly way much of the time. But most men I know, if they're honest, when they recognize what God's asking them to do, inside, in their flesh, they want to turn and run and go, you know what, I don't, I don't want that role. This is why so many men are passive and don't engage in the role that God's called them uh, to be a part of. So any guy who's like, you know, yes, I get to be in charge. woo Any guy who is like thinking about leadership in, with, with that in mind, this is not what God has given for you. This is about spiritual responsibility being placed on your shoulders as a man. And so as a man, you should feel the weight of that. And I tell guys I counsel, I say that means if Jesus came and knocked on the door of your house, he would ask for you, the man. And he would say, I'm, I'm holding you responsible for your family and for your wife. And so this is the leadership side of things. And, um, and you should feel the, the weight of that as a young man. I feel the weight of that. And, and at times it can feel crushing. It can feel crushing as a guy. But remember, I want to go back to this. because this is The context here is um, possibly someone who has an unbelieving husband. A woman who's married to an unbelieving husband as a possibility. So how... Might this unbelieving husband be one? Remember back in the previous passage, we talked last week we talked about how um, we relate to a boss or a um, someone who is unjust or not a believer. How does a Christian in that in that unjust situation? How do they relate to that boss or someone who's who's over them in that way? So now we're talking about a family dynamic where the husband may not be a believer and this woman is a Christian, and how does she relate to? this person she's married to. 
And the text here says, if you're going to win him over, it's going to be through your conduct. And you're not going to just persuade him using all your words. This is speaking to a human nature issue. That a man who's not yet a believer is not just going to look at you and be like, oh yeah, yeah, that's a good argument for the faith. I'm going to become a Christian now. Like That's not how it works. God's going to work through your conduct as a woman to hopefully win him to Jesus. And so that's a picture that, that Peter's trying to paint for us here. Submission does not mean that you follow him into sin. We talked last week that we said that God is your ultimate authority, but he's not your only authority. That means that God's your ultimate sovereign authority. So that that means for a woman that submission does not mean you follow him into sin and that you sin because that's what he's going to do. God's your ultimate authority. It does not mean that you're silent about evil or injustice. So often you'll see these women who are just so beaten down by their husbands and the husbands are abusive and they're abusing the kids and abusing the wife and he's throwing verses out like these verses in First Peter saying, you know, you're supposed to submit and throwing it in her face. And in reality, there's a time when a woman needs to pick up the phone and call the cops. And let the government, which we talked about in the previous passage, let the government carry out God's wrath on the evildoer. So there's time. When a woman does that, there's time when a woman goes to the elders of her church and she says, my husband is doing this, this, and this. Can you please come and help and intervene? There's a time for all of that. It does not mean that you follow him into sin. It does not mean that you allow evil and injustice to continue if you're a woman and a wife. God's ultimate. This is the part I was talking about when I said most of us have never seen this played out in a family. God wants husbands to lovingly lead, and he wants the wife to lovingly follow. This is God's design. And so when couples get this right, it is a, it is a beautiful image. In fact, I'd, I'd encourage you to think about people that you've seen in your life where they've lived this out well. And that's a model for you to, to look at and, and picture and think, this is how I want to live this out in my life. If you go back all the way to Genesis chapter 3, don't turn there, we're, we're going to talk about it briefly. If you go back to Genesis 3, the fall, um, the first sin, what do we see? After Adam and Eve sin, there's this consequence where God says in Genesis 3, God says to Eve, he says, your desire shall be for your husband. And commentators have spent countless volumes of words on what is, does that mean? Exactly? Most would say it means this, that she, in her sin, will want to rule over him. And in turn, because of the fall, the man, even though he is commissioned to lead the family, which is God's design, not just because of the fall, that he's going to want to um, be dominating in his leadership. And so both genders, male, female, We have these ways of allowing the curse, the result of sin, to impact our relationships. 
So the sin of men is often one of two things. Either he aggressively dominates or he passively retreats. And the sin of women, it can be one of two things. It can be refusal to follow or try to control in her own way her husband and family. So what Peter's trying to show in this text is how the gospel transforms all that. How the gospel turns what happened in Genesis chapter 3 on its head. That's what Peter's trying to show us in this passage. So with that, I want you to discuss uh, questions 1 to 4. They're on your sheets at your tables. Go ahead and do questions 1 to 4. I'll give you some time for that. Okay, so I want to turn your attention to a quote that um, I think is helpful in the context of this passage. And uh, so here's the quote. Marriage should not be a continuous battlefield, but instead should become a place for Christian mission or growth. So one of the big things I think Peter's trying to communicate is, um, as often can happen in any relationship, especially a marriage relationship, is it becomes like a battlefield. It can become this all-out war. And so we're going to unpack a few more things that Peter is saying um, to the women as it relates to what this relationship can potentially become and how to steer clear of it becoming that kind of a relationship. So imagine, just imagine if this quote, if this were played out in marriages um, today, if, if, if the Christian marriage was seen as a place of mission and growth, not this all-out war and battlefield that you see playing out in our churches and also throughout our culture. Just, just picture that. And imagine what that would be like. I think this is what most of us would want. I, I think if I were to ask you personally, what describe marriage, what you want it to look, I, would, I, I think you would want it to look more like that as opposed to what it often um, looks like. Remember the context. This is potentially a woman who's married to an unbeliever, and how might she win him over as she tries to engage him in this way? The text says, by her conduct, by her example. Most men um, will not be nagged into the kingdom. That's not how it's going to work. It's not going to work that way. She shouldn't try to turn every conversation into a gospel presentation. Where, where do you want to eat? Uh, Texas Roadhouse. They have good bread. Well, Jesus is the bread of life, right? You don't, it's not going to work. That's going to become annoying to someone who's not yet a believer or someone who is a believer. True. Look at verse 4 again. It says, she should have a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, this is a tough one, okay? We're going to look at this. This word gentle, it means humble. It means humble. It's in contrast to someone who's harsh and abrasive. Now, should that be true of anyone who's a Christ follower? Yes. Yes, it is. In fact, the word gentle here is the same word that's used to describe Jesus multiple times throughout the New Testament. 
And the word quiet, now listen, this has been abused by a lot of people. This word quiet, this does not mean you can't speak, ladies. That's not what it's saying. It means she should have a calming presence about her. Going back to the war, the battlefield metaphor, she should have a calming presence about her, one who seeks peace, not one who seeks war. She's not just combative and abrasive and always looking for a fight. That's what this word, when you unpack what it means. This does not mean, ladies, that you can't be an extrovert or you can't be talkative or you can't be enthusiastic or you can't be funny. That's not what it's getting at. This word has been taken and abused by people and be like, hey, put, put them in their place. This is not what Peter is saying when he uses these words. You've got to understand, these words were originally in Greek. Then they were translated into English. And at times, you can, the, some of the meaning can be a little bit off or a little bit just weird in how we say things in our language. So you understand what is, what's really being said here and not just read it um, just as you see it. And then we get to um, verses 3 and 4 as well, where it talks about, you know, braiding hair. And it's not, it's not as if Peter is, like, talking about the quiet, gentle spirit thing, and then he just goes, oh, yeah, and modesty. Let's talk about modesty. It's, it sounds like he just shifts gears. Like, what, what's it, why is he going to this thing? Well, here's why. Because some women may try to win their husband over by outward adorning and not let their character speak more loudly than their looks in this kind of relationship. And so there is a modesty element to this text, but what it's getting at is how do you try to win someone over? You don't do it by just externals. You do it by the character and the quality of your character and who you are as a person. And also, this does not mean, again, this has been abused by people. This is not, Peter's not saying you can't, um, braid your hair or color your hair or style your hair. Um, it doesn't mean you can't wear jewelry or wear a pretty dress. It's not what he's saying. Um, if he was saying that, because, you know, it also says, um, refers to certain clothing as well. So if that were the case, then what about just wearing clothing? That's listed here too, okay? So it's not like he's saying you can't do these things. He's talking about don't draw your inner worth, value, and, and, and significance from these kinds of things, but draw them from who Christ has made you as a person on the inside, all right? This is not all that complicated. This means that God cares a lot more about who you are inwardly than he does outwardly. And I know for a lot of you in the room, like for young ladies, you think to yourself, well, um, let me just show you how the sin of men and the sin of women, how it, it becomes this cycle that just feeds itself back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. So the sin of men, of course, might be, is to maybe only care about the outward as it relates to women. And then you as a woman, you buy into that sin and you start thinking, well, well, I got I to gotta be this, I got to be this, I got to do this, I got to do that. So you can get them to buy into you. And all you're doing is you are feeding 
Each one of you are feeding the other sin. And it's just a cycle where he's feeding your sin, you're feeding his sin, you're, he's feeding your sin, and back and forth you go. And this is not the kind of foundation that a relationship that's godly can be based on. So, can you guys guess what country spends the most on cosmetics in the world? I'm not hearing any confident. You're like, I'm hearing like whispers. Who's number one? Who do you think's number one? Europe is not a country. You're like, but they are the, the nation, the, ten, the beast, the ten-horned beast, right? No. So who's, what country? You just shot one out. America. To George Bush, that is a country. America. Yes, you're right. Um, all right, so number one, U.S. is number one. $39 billion a year, right? Second place, Japan. $26 billion per year. Number three is France. Number four is Germany. I had no idea that German, Germans cared that much. Um, number five is the U.K., all right? Those are the top five. So you're right, Europe is definitely in there. So sorry if I made about the Europe joke. Uh, okay, cosmetic surgery. U.S. leads the world. 18% of all cosmetic surgery is U.S., the whole world. Brazil is number two at just 13%. And I don't know about the rest, but who cares? Um, so U.S. is number one in cosmetic spending, but number 23 in the world's satisfaction with life ranking. I don't know how they determine these things. You know, like, how satisfied are you with life on a scale of 1 to 10? <laughs> they have these rankings somehow. I don't know how they get these things. But so U.S. is number one in cosmetic spending, 23 as far as satisfaction of life. Japan is number two cosmetic spending, but 90th in life satisfaction. There's an article published a while back called Americans Spend Billions on Beauty Products But Are Not Very Happy. And here's why, because you weren't meant to find happiness there. Very simple. You weren't meant to. And so for the lady, I want to challenge the ladies with one last thing. Because um, I've been doing this high school thing for a good while. And I know the temptation for, um, for anyone, but also for you ladies, is just to live, in, in high school especially, and also when you get into college, is just to live a really shallow, superficial life. And, and be so caught up in this external world and never really allow God to develop in you this inner thing that's being described in this text. And I will tell you that if you, if you want to be in a relationship with a godly man, the right kind of man, the thing that will attract someone is, is that. It's this inward thing that's going on, not this, all this external stuff. And I'm not saying that you need to like, you know, flip some switch and you're like, oh, that's brilliant, Dave. Thank you. I will finally, you know, I'm not saying that you flip some switch and, and you set out to like on this crusade to go find some dude. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying you, you be who God's called you to be. And you let God sort those things out. 
But when it comes to your time and your energy and your effort in your life, how much of that relates to you growing and developing as a child of God, as a godly woman, versus all the stuff you can get caught up in that just focuses on everything else? So do you want to live a life that's shallow and superficial, or do you want to live a life that has depth and meaning and significance in the eyes of God? I'm going to turn to the guys now. So verse 7 is the, the passage here for the guys. And we could do two sermons on this. We've got, we got one sermon, though. It says in uh, verse 7, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Verse 7 is getting at one big idea with men, and it's this. It's sensitivity. Living with your wife, future wife in your case, in an understanding way. I don't mean to stereotype here, but there's probably one gender that's more prone to being insensitive. I don't know which one that is, but I think you might already know which one I'm talking about. But Peter's addressing insensitivity. I'm amazed at how many men pride themselves on being insensitive. It's like a mark of true manliness to, like, be insensitive. I mean, how many of you guys, if, if, if one of your friends says to you, you know, I, I think you're kind of sensitive, and not even meaning it in a demeaning way, do you not take offense at that? And you kind of buck up and you're like, I'm not sensitive. I am dull as a rock. Right? Like that's, you, you kind of have this, you buck up against it because it's, it almost seems like a, an offensive thing to say that a guy is sensitive. So a lot of guys pride themselves on being insensitive and it comes out in their marriages and their relationships. And a lot of guys will think things like, well, if she thinks I'm insensitive, she just needs to get over it, which kind of affirms the point, right? It's like, you got problems, bro. I'll also tell you that men that play this card, some men will do this. They'll say, yeah, I know this verse says that I should live with her in an understanding way, but she's impossible. And they blame it on her. And I will tell any man, I will say, if she, your wife, thinks you're not living with her in an understanding way, then you, by definition, are not. That's simple. So Peter's addressing this topic when it comes to how men are to relate in their marriages. Remember, because of the curse, men have this propensity to want to dominate and want to um, take over. And this is not God's design. They're supposed to lead and be a servant leader, but not dominate in their leadership. Um, So being insensitive is not manliness or masculinity. This is cowardice masquerading as masculinity. So what does it mean to be sensitive? As a man, it's not just what you say, but it's also how you say it. 
As men, whenever we are, we think we're right, we think it doesn't matter how I say stuff because I'm right. And you should just deal with my rightness. And so we are insensitive in how we communicate these things. And I'll tell you guys here in the room, I know you're not married yet, but this pattern of learning needs to start now with moms and sisters and friends. And if you want to know how you're doing, ask. If you want to know how you're doing in this area of learning how to honor women, ask someone. Ask, don't just ask one, ask several. Ask relatives, ask friends. Hey, how am I doing? Do you think I'm, am I doing okay in this area as a a young man? Like, how am I doing? And you've got to practice showing honor now. And I know it can be hard to understand women. It can be hard to understand as as a guy. In fact, one of my favorite uh, jokes by one of my favorite comedians, Jim Gaffigan, he's a good comedian. And uh, he says this really funny joke. He says, um, he says, you know how sometimes people, when they're trying to communicate how hard, how hard something is, they'll say things like, it's not rocket science. And he says, but what do rocket scientists actually say when they're saying that? And he says, maybe something like, you know, it's not like trying to talk to a woman, right? And it's true. So for a lot of guys, not just rocket scientists, but for a lot of guys, you find it difficult to try to relate and honor in this way. But here's how you show honor in these kinds of relationships. Here you go. Here's three things for you. How does a man honor his wife? Um, he leads. We've discussed this. Servant leadership. He protects. You know, the interesting thing, you've all seen the whole hashtag MeToo campaign right now that's going on in our country and a lot of women are coming out and saying how they've been abused physically and sexually. And it's interesting with this idea of protection that even our secular culture right now affirms that men are supposed to protect and not exploit. It's obvious to them. This is like one of the moments where I think our culture, even the secular culture, agrees with the Bible that men are supposed to protect. They're not supposed to exploit. And it's why you see woman after woman coming out and saying, this person did this to me, this person did this to me, and it wasn't right, and they are right to say that. Because a man's role is to protect. And then thirdly, um, the man's role is to provide. That means um, physical provision. And some other ways as well. I don't have time to get into. But lead, protect, and provide. And so for you young men in here, to live in this understanding way means that you um, should be curious. You ask, you ask questions. And I'm personally, I feel like I'm not that good at this. I mean, my wife has to remind me and say, hey, you haven't asked me a question in a while about um, certain things I'm kind of walking through and going through. And I'm like, yeah, you're right, I haven't. I haven't done that. I haven't done well at that. But understanding, wanting to know like her concerns, her fears, her desires. As a man, the way to understand her is you get to know those things. Ask her questions. Most guys don't ask questions. They just kind of talk about themselves or share about this friend or what that friend did. 
but you ask questions. You, you, you're inquisitive. You're curious. You want to get to know her. And this is what it means to live in an understanding way. And I'll, I'd said this to the, I'll say this to the guys as well, but for some of you guys in the room, um, I've got concerns for some of us. I feel like some of us are in this place of just being like shallow and just superficial and not really wanting to grow deep with Christ and deep in relationships. And the challenge is be curious about God, what God wants you to um, become as a man, but also when you get into a relationship eventually that you're curious in, um, in, these, uh, um, in these contexts, that you are asking her these kinds of questions. I'll say one more thing. We're going to have more discussion here at the end. Um, what is up with this weaker vessel phrase in this passage? What in the world does that mean? And it sounds demeaning, doesn't it? All it means is that generally speaking, men are physically stronger than women. Now, there are exceptions. Of course, there are. There was a girl at, in, our, in our group in Arlington, Texas, many years ago, and she was 110 pounds, and she was very feminine, but this girl um, was on the wrestling team, and she beat up dudes that were her size. And it was crazy. Like She was like this ball of energy and would just take guys to the mat and pin them, and the guys are like, yeah, it was really interesting to watch, right? It was just crazy. But this, this, this girl, like she could take these guys out, right? And so there are exceptions. But there's a reason why they're called exceptions. And again, this is um, going back to the whole Me Too campaign thing. Um, there's a reason why most everyone coming out is, or women talking about what men have done because most of the time men are the aggressors in these situations, and so, um, this is uh, men coming against women in these situations. So, what Peter's saying, most men have the ability to control a woman with their brute strength. And Peter is saying, no, you don't use your power and your strength to abuse. You use it to protect. And you protect her instead of exploiting her. And so um, the whole big idea here, guys, is this is how the gospel applies to a relationship um, in this context. Go ahead and do your last few uh, questions at your tables.